afternoon and welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. My name is Chris Hopkins and I am the Vice President of the Evolution USA business. Today I'm joined by an amazing panel of guests to discuss the topic of building high performance teams, surely a subject that should be close to the heart of all engineering leaders. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions and we'll start with Frank. Over to you. I'm Frank Connery. I'm an engineering manager at Clavio. I've been there for a little over a year. Thanks very much. Uh, Stuart, onto yourself. Hi, my name is Stuart Layton. I'm a director of engineering at HubSpot. Uh, I've been at HubSpot just almost uh, seven years. Thank you. Uh, moving on to Subasis. Hello, everybody. This is Subasis Bhattacharya, Executive Director at Athena Health. I just completed 90 days in Athena Health, and before Athena, I was in Amazon. Okay, thanks very much. And then last but by no means least, uh, Sagar. Everybody, I'm Sagar Naik, and I'm uh, a Director of Software Development at uh, Audible. Okay, thanks very much for the introductions, guys. Um, now that we've established a context with each of you, let's move on to talk about the topic at hand. Um, so all of you have put forward a question or, or a statement related to building high performance teams. As usual, we'll work our way around the room to ask each of you to pose your question and then give some reasons behind it and, and some context to others. And then we can get everybody to contribute and, and, and uh, share, their, share their thoughts. Um, Frank, we'll start with you again. You had a question around managing high performers who actually don't want a promotion um, and how to handle the development and keep them challenged and satisfied at work. Um, do you want to share where this comes from and, and uh, we can take things from there? Sure. Um, yeah, I've run into this a few times in my career and I found it pretty unique to technology. Uh, the problems are so interesting and have such depth that people will sometimes just enjoy solving those problems and they won't want to, you know, progress in sort of the traditional corporate hierarchy. Um, and that presents a problem as a manager because that's usually the carrot you use for high performers is you promote them, you bring them up. Um, but uh, when when I've had these people, uh, I've tried to check in a lot and not uh, and still increase the difficulty and complexity of their tasks. But there's a bit of a ceiling there, and uh, they're always great employees to have because they just churn through the work that a lot of people don't want to do. But uh, that also means it's very important to keep them happy and satisfied. Yeah, that's a tricky situation to deal with, isn't it? Um, so who would like to share their thoughts on this question first of all? Stuart, yeah. Yep. Can I ask a clarifying question? So is this like a, an individual contributor who is really good but is not interested in going down the individual contributor track? Or are they sort of reached the end of that track and then the only option is to move to management? Can you sort of provide a little more color there? Yeah, um, it's, it's an individual contributor. Um, most of the time, uh, actually all the time. And um, usually they're they're on the cusp of, they, they almost never want to go into a management track at all, but they also don't want to become an architect. They like churning out code. They like coding and squashing bugs. And uh, that's what they're happy doing. Got it. So I, I guess the question that comes to mind there is, uh, like, are they happy with the sort of like that rote job? Like they log in and they see they've got, you know, three weeks of JIRA, they can just do small tasks or are they genuinely looking to solve bigger, more impactful problems? I think that the, they're, it, it's not necessarily all bugs. You know, there's, it's a, it, they like the mix and the flow of being a, a, a dev, but they don't want to 
uh, transition away from being a coder, essentially. So is it is it possible that maybe you're running into a problem with like the organizational structure itself, right? There's no reason why you can't give an individual contributor a task that requires more autonomy that has bigger impact and have them implement it, right? So a lot of companies will have these architectural roles. But you could have them do the architecture work and then implement the entire thing themselves. I, I think that's a that's a great point. Is that uh, we're sort of siloed into a certain kind of segmentation where when you're that architect, you're always delegating, and that you're right. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Um, Sagal, you wanted to share some input on this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way I have dealt with with a situation similar to this in the past is. Uh, by exposing them to a different problem set. It could be a different team, it could be a different sort of area of focus between you know, front end, back end, um, uh, or, or like through career development conversations, trying to understand what really motivates them still, um, given that they have become an expert in their current sort of responsibilities. And, and that has helped me um, have conversations with them on what's next for them and how do they how do they continue to grow? And growth just doesn't mean promotions. It also means growing their skill set and um, getting exposed to other things. So that's how I have uh, dealt with the situation in the past. Um, so was this, what, what about yourself? What thoughts do you have? Yeah, um, I, I concur with um, Stuart and, and Sagar. So I had a similar conversation um, uh, with my team member, uh, you know, and each one is different, like each human being is unique and they have their own preferences. I think what really works out is having career conversation regularly, like weekly, you know, what is their aspirations? Uh, are they happy with it? Um, what I've seen is that for the high performance team is that if you stretch a little bit, right, if they're very comfortable in their current role, I think they get bored and their productivity goes down. If you stretch them a little bit, then what they have, um, make it a little bit out of comfort zone. I have seen that, you know, people get challenged, they're very productive and they continue to perform well. Um, so so I, I would agree with most of the panelists over here. I think this um, topic is quite interesting because, you know, when I started in technology recruitment, probably around 20 years ago, I think as people progressed up the um, career path within technology, they tended to get shoehorned into most, you know, leadership roles or project management orientated roles, which um, is not ultimately what a lot of engineers like doing and what and the direction that they want to go in i think that the landscape has definitely changed a lot since then and now there's a lot more pure technical career paths available to people within most organizations but at the same time um there's often you know difficulties that people face to kind of implement um you know the the, the, the career paths that they would ultimately choose um Stuart, um what else would you like to share on this topic yeah so uh i think one of the things you mentioned was as part of like the reason there's a problem here is you don't want people to maybe leave the company because opportunity for them has has evaporated. Um, I think there's sort of like two things. I've sort of seen two reasons why engineers want promotions. One is like prestige growth, and the other is compensation growth. Um, and I think for your very senior engineers who are truly performing at a high level you really have to go to bat with finance and engineering leadership to maybe blow out your bands for these top performers. Uh, and so having a conversation with someone who doesn't want to move to architect that like you can continue to get compensation increases, I found is very effective 
at keeping people retained and happy at keeping that pressure on them to perform. Um, and so, uh, and then when it comes to prestige growth, it's like if you can give them those bigger projects, like if you can't give them that staff or principal engineer title, but if you give them those bigger projects, the impact to the business, they will also find that an extremely rewarding way to, to stick around and, and grow, even if they can't experience the title growth that they're looking for. Yep, makes sense. Um, Services, so um, over to you. Yeah, um, I agreed uh, with that point uh, that um, monetary growth, nobody's going to disagree with it, but sometimes it could be challenging, right? And everybody's going to be happy. But monetary growth is not the only tool we have in our toolbox. Uh, you know, there are other tools available, getting the exposure, uh, you know, and and making sure they're getting recognized and, uh, you know, they, they're they challenged uh, with, with, with their um, abilities. They can expand, they can showcase. So there are many tools we have in our tool toolbox and monitor is definitely one of them and it's very effective. Looping back around to you, Frank, um, obviously this was your topic. I mean, what would you like to share off the back of hearing other people's thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I thought it was great feedback. I really echo uh, what Stuart said about kind of the compensation and the recognition side. Um, and also uh, what he said earlier about there kind of being the being, needing to be an organizational level investment in this seeing a possibility uh, and sometimes having to fight for that from the management level. Yep. So do you think there's some some good practical ideas for you to take um, take away with you? Yeah. Brilliant. Excellent. OK. Um, Shall we, has anybody got any other points they want to make on this particular topic before we we move on to the next question? Um, Subasis, so you, have you got your hand raised there? Uh, no, I think I have to lower my hand. It's still raised since the last <laughs> point. Okay. No problem, that can happen. Um, Frank, you're, you've still got your hand raised. Is that intentionally or unintentionally? Also unintentional. Okay, we're on a roll, good. <laughs> cool, all right, no problem at all. So. Um, Thanks for that, guys. Um, let's move on to Stuart's question. Um, so Stuart's question, again, was another good one, um, talking about how do you balance competing priorities of customer needs and technical debt? So again, Stuart, do you want to set the scene a little bit around that question and we can take it from there? Yeah, for sure. Like um, <clears throat> We've all experienced this where like ultimately the business doesn't really care about technical debt. What they care about is meeting the needs of the customers and oftentimes the needs of the customers are adding those additional features uh closing the closing the the really painful bugs addressing reliability needs that are you know plaguing the product and a lot of times like those features you want to build are blocked by tech debt or the the reliability problems are just the accumulation of tech tech debt um and you know, like I've got a way that I think about how do you provide a balance here, but I'm really curious to hear like how other organizations have successfully engaged in the business in balancing solving tech debt while also maintaining feature velocity and keeping your teams happy and performing well amid this tension. Yeah, thanks for that, Stuart. I think um, this is probably a, a subject that all engineering leaders leaders can relate to. So, um, good question. Um, let's go around the room. Subasis, do you want to start with your thoughts on this topic? Absolutely. And great question, Stuart. Thanks for raising it. I think we all either facing it or have faced it in the past, right? Uh, this is a very common challenge. 
And I think what is not well understood is the cost of not addressing the tech debt, right? It's, there's a lot of hidden costs to it. And I, I think what organization does not realize is how much cost is incurred um, due to all this carrying the old burden of the tech debt. It's very easy to see the feature, like, you know, there's a direct correlation with the feature ad, but there's no direct correlation. As a as a leader, um, you know, I had good luck um, creating some visibility around that. For example, came up with the metrics that, hey, this is the tech that, and I have this many resources utilizing, uh, you uh, occupied right now to address those tech tests. Second one, anytime we have to make a code change, we go through all this tech data, it slows down. It, you know, we're losing a competitive advantage. Try to associate cost with it because business understands the cost very well. Um, so always try to bring the transparency of, uh, you know, those hidden costs and, you know, what that means to the business. And, you know, usually those conversations you know, help me to prioritize some of those tech debt projects. Okay. Makes sense. I think, um, yeah, maybe other leaders might not understand the, the technical nuances, but they understand the cost of those pretty well. Um, so, uh, good point. Um, so, I'm moving on to, to yourself. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I, I think uh, sort of uh, piggybacking on, on what Subashi said already, um, what what's important to do is to understand the value of why why working on this tech debt or this engineering sponsored work is important and trying to trying to articulate uh, the the value in terms of it could be saving developer hours or it could be saving infrastructure costs or it could be uh, a security uh, related uh, you know improvement that you need to make so trying to in plain english translating engineering into plain english and then uh, communicating that to the non tech or non engineering stakeholders uh, helps and then i think most of the times what has worked for for me especially is to to create different sort of prioritization lanes between uh, tech like engineering sponsored work and product sponsored work and and that helps with with the prioritization so creating some guidance around um, distribution of time that the team spends on both these um, both these sort of streams of work has helped in in, in making progress on both yep Makes sense. Good. Thanks for that. And um, Frank, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's sort of similar to Sagar. Um, I feel like there needs to be a organizational level sort of uh, commitment that uh, tech debt will be addressed. And, and the best way that I've seen that happen is to have just sort of a 20% of every sprint is going to be set aside for tech debt. And then what that does uh, at the sort of operational level is it allows your velocity and everything to be set and the feature delivery expectations to just fall in line while you're doing that tech debt because it's really hard to come to the business and say, we're going to spend a month on tech debt. And if everything goes right, it'll be exactly the same as far as the customer is concerned. Okay. So it's more of your from your perspective a consistent 20 percent of time dedicated to um trying to stay on top of the the technical debt so that um it doesn't get to the point where it's it's snowballed to critical uh, to a critical level basically yeah and, th and that way you're also setting the expectation 
that you know it's it's rolled into your velocity it's rolled into your product expectations for when features are delivered and in your experience 20 percent works quite well yeah that that's the percentage i think that's ideal you again sometimes you have to fight for a particular percentage but anything's better than zero yeah okay good thanks for that stuart does um do those responses help in terms of providing some some ideas to combat this uh this issue yeah so i think like full disclosure like I think we have a system that works fairly well, and I'm and I was sort of like I've been at HubSpot for seven years. I'm sort of curious to hear how, how other orgs do this. And there's a lot of what I've heard here that rhymes with what we do, right? So you know, we we mentioned transparency, like we have to provide visibility as to like what problems the tech debt is causing. We have to articulate the value of why we want to close this tech debt. We want to have different priority lanes that we need to carve off time for engineers to do this work. Um, I think the one thing I want to add here is um, you need like a common language with product, right? So when you're arguing why work needs to be done, if your product managers and your product group leads and your director of product, if all the product companions up and down the engineering and product org have a common language and everyone talks about these technical initiatives in the same way, it makes it really, really easy. Um, one of the things we do is we like bucket tech debt into like security, infrastructure, reliability, and performance work. And uh, the business has decided at what point in time something is critical and is more important than a, than a product priority. And using this common framework, we're able to like basically cut through the noise of, you know, basically relitigating a product uh, feature work versus tech debt work. Um, the other thing I personally have found very effective with my teams is looking for opportunities to basically solve product work and close tech debt in the same task, right? If we can basically, uh, you know, kill two birds with one stone for lack of a better phrase, then they, like everyone comes away happy, right? The engineer feels like they've moved a mountain, the customer gets the feature they need, and ultimately like we've, we've closed down some tech debt and they're getting paid less often. That's sort of the, you can't get it every time, but those are like the sweet spots that you want your team to be at. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think um, particularly, as you said, when you've been with the same organization for a period of time, um, sometimes just getting that external validation that what you're doing internally is is, is what other people are doing is, is nice to hear. Um, so, yeah, good to, to share that with you, Stuart. Um, so, Gil, what else would you like to highlight on this topic? Just to add one more thing to what Stuart said about like when you're in a piece of code or when you're doing some, some feature work, try to clean up the tech debt in that space. Generally what helps is by having a prioritized backlog of, of things to do from, from a tech debt standpoint and, and tagging it into areas so that when someone goes into that area, they just know where to go and look. Otherwise, trying to discover tech debt could also be time consuming. Um, so that helps with organizing uh, the tech as well. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, any other points on this topic before we move on to, to our third one for today? Yeah, I just want to plus one that, right? Like, I think anytime I hear people like, I'm going to time box 20% or 10% to do like some performance-related work, like alarm bells start going off because you can spend all that time in discovery. But when you have that backlog of tech debt work, that makes that 20% time box super effective because... You know, the engineer just like pulls a task off the queue, does the work, closes the tech debt and moves on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, brilliant. OK, thanks very much for, for the input on that. Um, moving on to Subasys and your, your point. So you were asking that um, 
as leaders, what are the main steps that people should take in terms of building high performance teams? So I think you've probably got different dynamics here, depending on whether you're building a team from scratch or you're inheriting um, a team that's been built to a certain extent already. Um, do you want to just, um, as ever, provide some context to the question and then we can go around the room and get everybody to share their thoughts on this topic as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Yeah, so this is more like a generic question. I know, you know leadership evolves, right? And we all have our own way of uh, creating high performance team. And definitely I have my own way of creating high performance team, which I'm very passionate about. So I would like to understand, you know, what's what's your way of doing it, and then uh, and I'll definitely share, you know, what uh, what steps I follow, and that helped me to create the high performance team. Yep, perfect. Um, so um, let's uh, kick off with uh, Sagar. Do you want to share your thoughts in terms of how to to go from A to B? Yeah, uh, I think that's it's a uh, it's a continuous uh, sort of a problem to solve it's not like one and done um, and i think uh creating high performance teams and, and maintaining them at a high bar is is ex extremely important and also like keep raising the bar i think one thing that that really is key is for the for the folks on the team to be able to sort of speak the same language and respect and trust each other um, and and once you have that not just between engineers but also the managers, the, the engineering manager, the product manager, UX, like the whole ecosystem needs to be able to, to work really well as a unit um, and believe in the in sort of the common uh, purpose for the team. And that's sort of part of my, my question that I'm going to ask. But uh, does the team believe in what they're doing? Are they passionate about coming to work every day? Um, if if they're not, then then there is there's a red flag there. And if you're not passionate, I don't think you can bring your hundred percent to work every day. So uh, that in my for for me, that's the most important thing for the team to believe in what they're doing, trust each other, and and really have fun while doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all good points, um, Frank. What what pearls of wisdom would you have on this topic? Yeah, I would I would definitely echo what uh, Sagar said. Um, I sort of thought uh, I had written here, trust but verify. Um, you, you really need to set up that culture of trust. Um, and and I would also plug autonomy there, um, which kind of comes as, as the trust grows, then you can uh, give people more autonomy and that, that allows them to grow and usually makes them a lot happier at work. Um, it also fosters a culture where people are open about mistakes, um, which is a, a huge uh, window to sort of iteratively improving um, and uh, improving processes, looking back and sort of incrementally making yourself better, which uh, sort of presents pre prevents uh, stagnation and continues that high performance forward. Yeah, In interesting that kind of trust has, has come up twice um, already. So has anybody got any um, tips or, or techniques that worked well in terms of building that? that trust across across their teams yeah i can i, I can take that um yeah i think trust is you know it, it it's a it's an emotional thing it's it trust is more related to emotional security right so uh you know you feel confident that um your manager your teammate is there with you if things are not going right i mean things are going right, people feel confident, they're moving forward with it. The trust really comes into the picture. I'm trying to do something new 
what happens if it does not work? Right? Do I have the confidence of my teammate, my manager? Are they going to stand behind me? Like one of the thing, you know, um, Stu, uh, Frank said that open to mistakes, right? So, and if you are not open to mistake, the innovation would go down. Innovation means that you're going to try something new. That's what innovation means. And then, uh, you know, there's a chance of failure because nobody has tried before. And if you're not open to failure, the innovation goes down. And if there is no trust that people will be less willing to take risk. Um, so so I think that that's why the trust is very important. And it, it's it's a lot of leaders' responsibility to provide that, um, you know, emotional security so that people can build a trust on that. Yeah, brilliant. Completely agree with that. Um, Stuart, um, what would you like to share with the group? Uh, yeah, so I think providing that, uh, that base level of emotional safety you know, fostering a team that is inclusive where people feel like they belong is like that's table stakes. Like if you don't have that, nothing else gonna, is going to work. But I've also found that you as a leader need to be very predictable and reliable. Like if you have wild outbursts or if you are going to respond in random ways, you know, your teams are going to be less likely to reach out to you. And then if you commit to doing something and you don't do it, they're going to remember that. Like you may forget, but they're not, and they're not going to trust that you're there to help them out. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is like you have to oftentimes provide them the resources that they need. Like if you as a leader can't give them what they need, they're not going to be able to trust you. Um, and then lastly, I think this is extremely important, is that you need to sort of be able to run with them technically. You know, obviously we're not in the same code that they're in every day. We're not solving the problems. But to be able to bring uh, something to the table technically is going to both demonstrate that you have the context to be involved in those conversations and that when they run into technical challenges, they can rely on you as a as a sounding board to help them get through those problems. Yep. Brilliant. Some some really strong leadership principles there. Um, good to hear. Thanks, Stuart. Um, Frank, you wanted to share something? Yeah, um, I just uh, kind of wanted to echo the um consistency that Stuart had there and and but also flip it around a little bit and and uh, sort of come with the expectation not that not just that you would meet the expectations Wayne and do what you say you're going to do but that your team will and it sort of it does come from you um, and uh, yeah that that was what I want to say yeah yep so leading leading by example and setting the standards that you ultimately want others to follow yeah um, so was this um you know, this was obviously your your question that you posed, um, and you mentioned that you'd be keen to share um, what you believe um, works in terms of building a high performance team. So, do you want to share your thoughts on the subject now? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, and you know, I hundred percent agree with uh, the points. Uh, you know, what Sagar made and Frank and Stuart. Um, what I follow, what I've learned over the period of um, you know twenty plus years of my experience, how to build. Uh, you know, high productive team. I want to share that. Basically, I have the seven pointers, um, and I, I mentioned it explicitly, but I'm pretty sure most of you probably have that, you know, implicit way of doing it. Uh, the first one I see that choosing the right person. Um, you know, in the past, I had some hesitation in a long time when I was a new manager. 
I knew that the person may not be right, but action taking was difficult, right? It takes emotional toll. Do you want to take the action, not action, and delayed prolonging that usually, you know, uh, it's a detrimental to create a high productive team. So making sure that you have the right person, the right role is very important. Uh, I follow that uh, quite closely. Uh, the second one is purpose of the team. Uh, you know, having a North Star, and I think um, Sagar, you kind of mentioned that in the question as well as uh, you know in your answer to is uh, having. What I try to do is create a five years roadmap, knowing that as further you go, sometimes that those are not realistic, but it gives them a good mental composure what five years looks like why i'm going to stay here you know what is there for me so creating a north star and repeating that over and over and having discussion that hey this is the north star we're marching towards uh, third thing i follow is um, clear rules and responsibilities uh, it could be double-edged sword at sometimes but what i've seen is that it avoids the friction, right? If there is an overlap, who is doing it? And I have seen that if two strong leaders going head to head, uh, you know, this way versus th that way, both of them could be correct. Both of them is implementable, but they'll go head to head, not knowing who should run with it. So um, the rules and responsibility definition is very important. Um, then um, empower individuals. And I think, uh, you know, that came up during this discussions too pushing the decision-making at the executioner level, especially the two-door decision-making, which is revertible, uh, you know, making that decision-making at um, executioner level is empowering individuals. Um, fifth thing is communication. Um, now, again, communication is important. We all agree, but how we communicate is even more important. What I've seen in certain organization, the cost of communication is extremely high. There's a meeting with 50 people joining, and then some individuals, they say that I was not part of the meeting, so I did not know what's going on. And um, some organizations, especially Amazon, has solved it by creating read and write culture. So reduced the verbal communication quite a bit. And most of the communication happens through read and write culture. So that way, you publish once and consume many times. So communication is very important, but I have seen that read and write culture works um, extremely well. Uh, sixth point I follow is that the feedback loop, you know, as a manager, we need to be open to criticism, you know, understand what people are saying, learn from it and provide a feedback. And then um, the last thing which I try to do is, um, you know, when we are working together, we may not know the individual as well. We know that working phase, the game phase on, but how that person is outside the work could be totally different, could be the best friend, but within the work environment, maybe they're going head to head. And it eases the tension quite a bit if we have some activity just unrelated to work. So, so what I have done in the past is um, I have, um, uh, you know, engaged uh, myself. Um, set an example. Also for the team, uh, you know, a lot of philanthropic work, like you know, was walk against hunger, you know, work for autism, or the so many activities we participated, meal packing for underprivileged children. That brings the team together quite a bit. Um, so those are the high level, you know, seven points, uh, you know, I try to follow um, to form a, uh, you know, good 
team and build a cohesive team together. Perfect. Thanks for that. Services. I know you are. I know you're a busy man, but it sounds like you might have the ingredients there for a for a book. Maybe with your seven points, they're they're all very very strong and valid. Um, anybody want to pick up on any of those in particular and just add a bit more meat to, to those bones, or or shall we move on? I think one quick thing to add is uh, getting to know people at a very personal level. Um, at every like like Subhashi said, everyone's different. Knowing what how what what their personality is really helps you as a manager um, sort of deploy them at the right spots, at the right in the right projects, in the right sort of stages of the projects, and, and that really helps you um, sort of build the right uh, roster on your team. I think that's very important in my mind too. Agreed, uh, Stuart. Um... Over to you. Yeah, one last thing I want to add. This has been this has been great. Like, there's so much overlap between what I've experienced and what I what I strive to be as a leader. Uh, the one thing I just want to add is like you you need to set concrete expectations, right? Like, if a team has a north star and they know what they're working towards, you need to apply that pressure. They need to feel that tension. They need to feel that sense of urgency. And if they have that urgency, if they have that north star, if the team's operating well. Like you, you can get a great team to the point where they're like self-driving, right? They will, they will keep themselves on on the on track, which is a great place to be. Agreed. The holy grail. <laughs> um, brilliant. So, um, let's move on to the fourth and, and final topic. So, um, Saga, you wanted to, you've touched on this already, but wanted to um, talk about what a role, uh, what role, sorry, does a shared vision and goal setting play in building high-performance teams? Which again is a really interesting topic. Do you want to add some context and we can take things from there? Yeah. Um, so to Subhashi's point from before about uh, setting a North Star or, or setting a, a vision for your team. So generally, um, leaders set the vision, get the team sort of bought into it, and then and then sort of their, their roadmap or their mission is then towards that uh, high-level vision. Uh, what I want to ask the panel is, uh, what are the ways in which you do that, and how do you how do you make sure that the the teams stay on that path over the years? Because um, it, sometimes it may be harder. How often do you revisit uh, what your vision is? Cool. Thanks for that context, Stago. Um Services, you want to kick things off with this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, great question, Sagar. So. What I usually do um, is um, create a five-year roadmap. Now, there is a different way of capturing it, like OKR could be one way of capturing it, uh, but um, each lead within my team, I sit with them, what their vision is, try to capture it for five years. Um, knowing the fact that five years is a long time and we don't live in a static world, that world is constantly shifting and changing, and people need to be aware of it. Uh, but what I've seen is that the theme does not change. The ways change. What does not change, how we do it changes. Technology is changing, it, product is changing it. But it helps quite a bit to the team, uh, you know, understanding this is what it looks like. You know, one of the things I have seen, Sagar, is we'll see people iteration going high enough when they get, when they understand that we're not moving fast enough with the technological evolution, right? And if they feel that I'm going to continue doing it, I'm not moving myself in technological adventure, you'll see that iteration will go high. And 
when they know that no something is coming well we have to do this to take care of the business today but this is what's their line in two years three years it goes well with that and and i've seen that iteration is less and and people feel very contained with what um, they're delivering brilliant thanks for that Stuart. um you wanted to make some comments yeah so this like this the shared vision and these common goals are critical right like this sort of is one of the things that I was talking about you can use to apply tension there. Um, I think one of the things I learned very early on as an engineering leader, as a, as a team lead, is you can almost not communicate your vision too much to your engineers, right? Like I, I remember very clearly one time I was explaining to a junior engineer like why we're doing this work. And he's like, oh yeah, we talk about this every week. It's the coolest mission in the world. Like I, I want I like want to work all the time on this thing, right? So you you get you get your engineers fired up with like why they want to work on this thing. Um, I think an interesting side channel though is you need to find some way to weave in customer information into those communications about the vision and the mission. Like it's it's almost like a it's like an anti pattern where you can become so focused on a mission or vision that you become blind to the active customer needs. And so teaching your teams and teaching your engineers that they should be talking to customers regularly, that they should be on calls with customers, that they should be reading customer surveys, that that information should be part of their goal setting framework is really, really helpful in preparing them to pivot when they need to pivot, right? Like no one likes, no one likes to have their roadmap blown up. But at the end of the day, it's like our customers aren't paying us money for our roadmaps. They're paying us money to solve their problems. Um, and then the last thing I would say is you want to share those wins that your team gets as they meet those goals. Like they set those goals, they solve customer problems, and you share those wins with the team. You share those wins with uh, the larger engineering team, with the product team, with the company. And that helps reinforce the cycle of setting goals, getting customer feedback, and then executing on those goals. And then has the added benefit of like the engineering org is building trust with the rest of the company, which in turn buys you more capital to act with more autonomy. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Stuart. I think I agree. I think once you've got a clear, defined vision or plan in place, you can't talk about it too much. You know, if, if you if you ask me, um, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised sometimes um, how much you do need to talk about something for it to, to truly percolate down um, amongst the team. Um, Frank, um, what would you what are your thoughts sorry, on the topic? Yeah, just I wanted to kind of revisit uh, what Sagar was saying about buy in. And uh, and I, I really agree with uh, all the points everyone's said here. One of the things I thought uh, of highlighting is uh, in order to get that motivation, to get that buy in, which is so important, it has to be an ambitious goal. So sort of like that five year plan it has to be high impact to really get the engineers going. Um, and what that does is it sort of translates the engineer's uh, goal from being kind of a personal goal to a communal goal to where, you know, we're doing this together and we're building this great thing together. And that's that that's that extra epsilon that really pushes somebody to towards excellence. Um, and I, I also wanted to address uh, what Stuart said about getting the, cust you know, sort of laundering in the vision into the customer needs. Um, that's super important. It's not always easy. I've, I've had a lot of trouble with it. Um, and I, I try very hard to do it and sort of sometimes pad or augment a customer ask to make it more of a, of something that's achieving the vision, but it's super important. Yeah. Thanks for that, Frank. Um, so um, what, um, you put forward the question, but in terms of your experience, what would you say, um, you'd like to add 
in addition to what's been discussed already. Yeah, I think I think all were great points. Thank you for for your thoughts. Uh, I think to to just sort of reiterate some of the things that were said. Uh, the it's it's very important for that vision or or even your mission statement to be customer obsessed, right? Like depending on whoever your customer is, I think at the end of the day, it it needs to be uh, improving in a in a large extent uh, what your what your team is trying to sort of provide as an experience um, and making it ambitious, getting the team excited about it. The other thing that's important is at the time of the when you're hiring someone on the team, it's very important to understand if this person will be excited about what your team is doing or not. And sometimes when, especially in, in sort of a high growth stage, you may fall in the rut of just like quickly hiring people and not doing the due diligence of making sure that this is the right fit for, for the new engineer. Uh, and it's it's critical and sort of baking it into the hiring process, uh, I think is very important. And one last thing, when it comes to uh, individuals on the team, I think it's important to have the individual's goals in, let's say, their career growth plan or development plan, however companies do it, to be aligned with what the what the team's vision is. Um, and, and that helps with even an individual's long-term roadmap around uh, where, where they're headed. Yeah, valid point. I think making sure that um, that vision resonates with the current team um, is important, but uh, at the same time, it's equally important that for anybody you're looking to bring into the team um, externally, it also resonates with them because that's going to give you a platform for much stronger longevity in in the team and um, people should be more willing and wanting to, to stick around and uh, and work towards said vision. Um, so yeah, very good point. Um, anything else anybody would be keen to share on this particular topic? No? Okay. Stuart, were you going to say something? Yeah, there? I just wanted to throw something out there. This is a little bit tangential, but I think it's like, it probably merits an entire podcast discussion or 10 on its own. But um, you need to, like all these things we've talked about, you need to have alignment with your companions in product management up and down the stack, right? Like if your companion at your level is out of alignment on these things, you're going to run into problems. If the team leads, individual product managers are out of alignment, you're going to run into problems. Because as we're messaging up and down our respective organizations, they're doing the same thing. And, you know, signals change, messages get muddied. And if you don't have that alignment with your product managers, like everything's going to just going to fall apart. If you learn the hard way on that front before, Stuart. No comment. <laughs> okay. um, Frank, um, do you agree with that, that comment from Stuart there? Absolutely. And I, I find that to be a really hard thing to enforce uh, from the organizational perspective. I found a lot of misalignment, um, sometimes more severe, sometimes less severe. <laughs> but it's it's a huge problem and it, and it really affects um, the organization. Brilliant. Well, um, thanks very much, guys, for, for your contributions today. One thing I kind of like to do just before we wrap things up is just quickly go around the room and ask for a key takeaway that you took from the conversation today and something that you're going to um, look to talk about internally or, or discuss with your peers um, um, from the conversation. So, um, Saga, what would you be taking away from today's discussion? I'm going to be thinking more about the, the five-year roadmap, uh, make it more, sort of think about more about the long-term and, and uh, where we are headed. Uh, that, that really will be a good thought exercise and, and making sure that, you know, I, I have that clear in my head so that then I can translate it uh, down to.
document. Yeah, and then once you're at that point, document it, um, share it so that everybody's got it in black and white as well. Um, there's nothing that can get lost in translation then. Um, Frank, what about yourself? Uh, I know I know this wasn't uh, actually my question, but I really liked the idea that you can't evangelize enough for the team vision um, to just, you know, uh, weave it into everything and, uh, you know, bring it up all the time and don't let it get stale. I thought that was really important and insightful. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Stuart, on your end? Yeah, I think this is something that uh, has become increasingly apparent to me in sort of a post-COVID world where this conversation is happening over Microsoft Teams. We work on Zoom, we work on Slack, that um, the idea that you can grab everyone into a room and like hash out a design problem or a decision is just, is just gone, right? Um, and so moving to a world where you can communicate asynchronously, where you emphasize clear communication, uh, it's just been a, has been a has been a real win for for us, and it's a, been a good reminder that we all should invest in our communication skills and writing skills. Yep, brilliant. Thanks, Stuart. And then finally, Subasis, what uh, are you taking away from today? Yeah, I think the organization alignment. Uh, you know, both Frank and Stuart mentioned product, and I 100% agree. And I also understand how difficult it can be sometimes, especially to communicate the technical intricacies, right? Infrastructure related, which product may or may not understand and they might give a feature as a priority versus you know, all this technical uh, goes back to detect it as well. So I think we need to spend a little more energy to figure out how to better align with product and you know make that as a one of the important criteria for success. Brilliant. Um, a good note to, to end things on. So we'll leave it there. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to thank my guests today. So thanks very much, Saga, Frank, Stuart and Subasis. I've really enjoyed talking to you and uh, listening to your contributions today. If you'd like to get involved in a future podcast, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or contact me via my email, which is chris.hopkins at evolutionjobs.us. And we'll see you next time.